Hello, and welcome to the Cam Hunters podcast, a podcast focused on all things surveillance. For those of you who may be listening for the first time, my name is Julia Chan, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Communication, Media, and Film at the University of Calgary. I make this podcast together with my friend and colleague, Steffi McKnight, who is an assistant professor at Carleton University in the Bachelor of Media Production and Design program. This season, we're interviewing a range of people and scholars who focus on surveillance from different vantages. And today, we are so pleased to share with you our conversation with Dr. Torin Monahan. Torin Monahan is a professor of communication at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-editor-in-chief of Surveillance in Society. His research mostly focuses on the social and cultural dimensions of surveillance systems, with a specific focus on gender and racial inequalities. He's published over 50 articles or book chapters and six books, including Surveillance Studies, A Reader with David Murakami Wood and Surveillance in the Time of Insecurity. Today, we'll be talking with him about his latest book, Crisis Vision, Race, and the Cultural Production of Surveillance, published by Duke University Press, which investigates the racializing effects of contemporary surveillance through the lens of visual and performance art. So let's get into it. So welcome, Torin. So Torin Monahan is joining us today to talk about his new book from Duke University Press called Crisis Vision, Race, and the Cultural Production of Surveillance. So welcome, Torin. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So maybe we can just start off by talking about what crisis vision means. So what did you, when you came up with that term, what does that um, point to? That is a big question. That's a <laughs> There's a whole book for Try to come up with these uh, conceptual categories that can contain the capaciousness of all the ideas we have and all the... Um, uh, critiques we have. So large question in a nutshell, though, crisis vision is really trying to get at this, this moment that we're in of perceiving threats, perceiving crisis, perceiving uncontrollability in our, in our lives and in our worlds, and how we tend to scapegoat for those crises and direct negative attention upon especially racialized others. And that this is a dynamic that is self-perpetuating, that you know, the, the more you start to look for crises or look for um, threats, the more you see them and the more you might tend to want to police them or to exclude them, or in the context of our work, you might want to surveil them. So crisis vision about this gestalt moment that we're in, this orientation to to seeing the uncontrollable and wanting to police it. And so in your book, you connect this this wider idea of crisis vision specifically to art. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you were attracted to art particularly. And also, was there a specific piece that you encountered that maybe sparked your interest or had a real, a real impact on you? Great question. So there's a, a long answer and a short answer. The, we like long answers. Which, which would you like? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the longer answer is more biographical, that when I was finishing up graduate school back in the early 2000s and beginning to conceptualize what is going to be my next project that's beyond my dissertation, which was more of an organizational study of 
infrastructure deployment and public education. So I thought, what is going to be my next study? And I was surrounded by a bunch of really critical, creative artists at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where I got my, my PhD. And they were doing, so some of them were involved with the Institute for, for Applied Autonomy and other critical anti-surveillance uh, groups that were doing innovative things about calling attention to surveillance and culture jamming and avoidance. And so that planted the seed for me that I wanted to get into surveillance studies. I wanted to be in that kind of space. And in fact, the first publication I really had in surveillance studies was about art. It was about counter surveillance and, and art opposition. So it's been with me for a long time. And when I saw 10 or so years ago, many artists entering the scene and doing lots of different kinds of creative work, it's the, the fire caught hold again. And I wanted to really grapple with what artists were doing. At the same time, you probably noticed this too, I there were many relatively uncritical takes on art in our field and mm -hmm. in the larger media as well, where people would be captivated by what artists were doing and would reproduce it. And as if that was the end point, that was the end goal. See, there is surveillance and artists are doing cool things. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that dissatisfying that I wanted to push beyond that and really explore what the knowledge making process of art and the the kind of situations that art can create that work differently from social science, but yet might also shed some light on the limitations or constraints of social science work. So that's the orientation for the book. And it was it was actually a lot of fun to do because I got to look at a lot of great artworks and correspond with artists and uh, write about the works. And so for, as a, a creative thinking project, um, in a lot of respects, it was much more lively for me than some of the social science work I had done previously. I love that you did that. And actually, it reminds me uh, a lot about when I did my dissertation. So when I was doing my work, I was a student kind of at the forefront of when you started publishing those things, mostly about like you're saying the counter visuality or, and that was a really big article for me, uh, mostly because of one of the things that you said was about these white artists, you know, trying to achieve counter visuality, but at the same time, not doing that kind of culture jamming, as you're saying. And I wanted to just acknowledge this transition that I've seen or this growth throughout your pieces. So it's really interesting to have those very hyper white identities in that one article and those couple art articles and now this new text that really brings in and highlights racialized surveillance artists which doesn't happen often in our field as we know the field's very very white so mm -hmm. i i do love that i do love to see that transition and i wanted to know like obviously that was kind of a conscious thing but maybe you could talk a little bit more about that development first thank you very much for the <laughs> The feedback on my work, it's its flattering and um, somewhat still off-putting to hear that, that my people are reading the work and they mm -hmm. find it uh, meaningful in some way. So thank you for that validation. The I think what, what I wanted to wrestle with initially, and, it, and the book has moved well beyond this, to, as you've indicated, to really 
think about think about racialization in society more broadly. But initially, it was that privilege, that white privilege, that really was grating at me, and and I wasn't sure why at first. I mean, mm -hmm. I know why white privilege grates at me, but I wasn't sure why in these artworks. And through the analysis, I I started realizing, you know, that a critique of the artist is probably not productive and maybe not fair. That that's not really the project. Instead, I wondered, well, what is it about a particular orientation that people have to surveillance or privacy issues that is illustrative of that privilege? And so that in trying to unpack that, I realized or, or I started to develop this uh, trajectory that you indicate that the framework of individual individualized approaches to surveillance problems the right to hide from it or mask from it that's certainly salient in the field and also this the universalizing tendencies that we use to speak about surveillance even just in our discourse we're all under surveillance we're all exposed the we 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 is not really doesn't get at difference. It doesn't even allow for difference. The framework itself is flawed in that way. So moving from that, it made me want to explore different frameworks and see what artists who were intentionally confronting racialized, racializing surveillance were doing. And some of that, so one quick example would be the work of Dred Scott that I really, really love. And what Dred Scott is doing in some of his pieces is very confrontational. Like he has the blue wall of violence piece with the police batons hitting the, the the wooden casket and you know the reverberations and confronting not the blue wall of silence that might be honorific but the blue wall of violence this like this the police and their force and their policing of racial hierarchies in society so these are like really confrontational pieces that are obliquely about surveillance. They're, they're about you know, the police control of this distribution of the sensible, but they're not, surveillance starts to get subordinated, I noticed in my own analysis as I addressed more of the social problems as opposed to the technological gadgets. I was really struck by your observation in the introduction that you know, this this kind of crisis vision sort of claims to make other subjects visible, but paradoxically keeps them illegible via dehumanization. Mm -hmm. And and I, I guess why I was interested in that was because, you know, obviously when you're talking about crisis vision, you're talking about more than just surveillance, but in surveillance studies, we talk about visibility so much. And it just made me think about like, is is it is visibility is is the project of visibility actually accurate when we talk about surveillance? And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that, given that kind of paradox. Yeah, the the, the project of visibility is a fraught one because, on one hand, I think you're right that it is something that is obvious when we're talking about surveillance concerns that we want to focus on. Um, how we are made visible or how others are made visible and to what effect you know, the, the violence is. But on the other hand, visibility is something that we 
tend to draw upon, maybe not artists, but um, social scientists and policymakers, we tend to draw upon visibility as a corrective to so to these issues as well. And maybe, you know, this is one thing that I try to to delve into the archaeology of in, in that introduction is the visibility itself has its own politics and mm -hmm. it has its roots in this uh, you know scientific orientation to the world that is about parsing it up it is about controlling it it is about conquest and if you trace it to its origins in the scientific revolution you see that that conquest or that that scientific knowledge was always wrapped up in imperial projects was always wrapped up in not only exclusions but the um the appropriation of mm -hmm. others and their lands and their resources so from that perspective i think you're right julia that like that the the comfort of visibility is something that we should also interrogate first of all thank you for all these very thoughtful answers to all these questions they're very very thoughtful and they're really making me think but my question is going to be so simple because sure. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's not, but as an artist, I always find it funny because when, when I write often about art, I'm writing about my own. And as we know, a lot of people don't love that. They don't love it when artists write about their own work, not because it's necessarily like, it's not a good or bad thing, but I think often uh, whenever I submit something for publication or something, everyone's like, I want it to be relatable to an artwork I know. It seems bizarre that you're writing only about yourself, but you know, that's research creation. That's a methodology thing. But I want to know more about, because my mind doesn't go here ever. What is it like to be somebody who writes about art? And how is your process? You know, do you collaborate with the artists? How are they integrated into the artworks you choose? How do you choose the artworks? I'm just curious because that is something that I don't do. And I wish I asked, I have this question for all art historians as well. I've never asked it before. It just makes me really interested because it's so far removed from what I do. Let me first start out by complimenting you and your work as well. But I think one of the things that's so great about your work, Steffi, is that you do ground it in the autobiographical, that you you acknowledge the standpoint that you inhabit and you bring that to bear on the work that is produced. So the to the extent that more scholars, more artists could do that kind of positioning, I think would be a more honest, sincere approach to knowledge production or to 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 create creative expression. So, That's lovely. We're going to have to like edit that on a loop and like make sure that that plays in every academic setting moving forward. Be an academic mantra. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Torin, <laughs> for reinforcing what I think. <laughs> well, that, I've, I've had the pleasure of you know, reading your work, and, and both of your work and uh, engaging with you. So we're, we're, we're helping each other out. So how do I, how do I write about works? How do I think about or select works? It's a very broad question. I I think it's mutated over the course of this project as well. So I, I don't think I have a, a very concise answer to it. But some of the thoughts that come to mind are that initially I wanted to, I knew what I couldn't do, or I knew what I didn't want to do. And that provided a filter. I knew I didn't want to 
make this a social science project. I didn't want to go to museums and watch the the uh, uh, museum goers and uh, ask them questions. And I do want to explore, but I did want to explore the 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 tensions that are created by art. Mm -hmm. And so that led me then to to starting out with a, from a very formalistic position that when I had selected art artworks that I wanted to describe their formal properties, you know, to try to paint a picture so that in textual form, if someone did not see the figure, they would be able to conceive of what the work was. So I, I think I wanted to start out with the description and then move into more of this reflection on the intersubjective qualities of the art, like what, how it agitates or how it, how it affirms or fill in the blank. <laughs> and, and that's, so I, that helped me because then I wasn't trying to do everything all at once. Mm -hmm. It's a limitation, sure. Like I know that it wasn't a deeply participatory collaborative project because mm -hmm. my engagement with artists other than wonderful people like you and people at the confer conferences and, and the like and, and through the journal Surveillance in Society, other than those exchanges, my engagement with the artists happened more so in the final stages of production when I had to secure their permissions to reprint mm -hmm. the work. And a lot of them wanted to see what I had written about their work before doing that. And then some of them provided very helpful feedback. Uh, I, I mean, the sincerely, like very helpful feedback about some critical misreadings I was doing or disagreements they had. And I adjusted the text in relation to those those exchanges. I think that's lovely. I think, you know, for me, when you read a text like this, you never actually think about the process of people writing. And I think that's really interesting to hear, you know, the collaboration or that feedback happens at those end stages and how influential they can be to your text. And I would love to know, I, I love to know more about that. Like, I just, I love to hear about that process, if that's something, you know, for the future, is that a, a process that you want to continue with? Would you like to have artists integrated more early on in the process? Like, I just assume you're going to write a billion more books because that's what you do. So I just feel like maybe it's this will exhausting, be the... though. <laughs> I, I, I doubt I will write another book about art. Okay, interesting. Good to know. That's that I, I, being interdisciplinary and being curious about a lot of different things, I like to move in new directions and mm -hmm. challenge myself with new things. So I feel like having a monograph come out on that subject, it does feel like a bookend in its mm -hmm. own way. But that being said, I do hope that I'll get invitations to speak. And I might imagine people would want me to write contributions based on the work. I know that that happens as well. So I'm I'm not saying that it's over, but what I what I would like to see maybe in a larger way for the field, and this is learning based upon my own experience, is that some of that initial work that I published in article form generated some of the most heat from artists who mm -hmm. felt like I was attacking them. 
And that was never my intention. And mm -hmm. so I try to reflect on that in the book itself and reframe a lot of it. I, I like thoroughly reframe some of those earlier iterations to stress that what I was really interested in is confronting our, our collective constraints and talking about these issues. So the frames that I deploy in the book of like avoidance or transparency, complicity, violence, disruption, mm -hmm. these frames could apply to social scientists, they could apply to activists, they could apply to, and, and they do. Um, and there are undoubtedly other salient frames that could be applied. So I, I think that shifting the conversation, having it be more of a conversation where we could have a low stakes, low stakes forums where for that exchange in a non-threatening way, workshops, perhaps, you know, mm -hmm. something that is, is about bringing together those in, engaged in creative work with those engaged, engaged in more traditional forms of academic scholarship. I think that it shouldn't just happen via publication. It should it should be more widespread and more um, more intentional. Mm -hmm. So another thing that I I noticed when reading your introduction to the book is that there's a point I think fairly near the beginning where you talk about how art uh, kind of creates a sub I don't know how you put it exactly subjective space or subjectivity like that you step into this space of subjectivity that the art creates if that if I'm reading you right and I'm just curious I just thought that was a lovely uh, way of thinking about what art does and I wondered if you might elaborate a little bit on 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 that and also how maybe you've experienced art specifically or any specific artworks how I have experienced the artworks yeah, like, if, have you had that experience of being maybe transported into a different subjective space? For me, that's always the experience of stepping into a museum space, personally, that it is otherworldly. I lose track of time. I mm -hmm. um, get sucked into pieces and might be in some kind of dialogue, internal dialogue with them for five, 10 minutes and not, not realize that I haven't moved on, you know, until I lose the people I was with or, or people are trying to push me along. So for me, there's something about the, the, the spatial aspects of art. And I recognize that some of the most perhaps, um, agential or, or, collective art doesn't happen in those controlled spaces. Um, but for me, those controlled spaces are, um, they, 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 set, they set a mood. And I don't mean this just in the, the privileged art world sense. I mean it in the sense that, that there's a spatial politics of um, readying oneself for engagement and I think what is especially um, what is especially powerful about our works is that they 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 meet they can meet you more than halfway in that that invitation to to contemplate your own your your own uh, beliefs or to to be troubled emotionally that they 
they, they do a lot of the work. You know, some of the great, I, I think the most effective artwork does, does a lot of that work for you. And I, on that note, I lost track of the original question. <laughs> I mean, it's like you stepped into Julia's museum of questions. <laughs> lost track I've, of I've put you into a subjective space. That, you did? Uh... Oh, yeah, the subjective space. <laughs> that was the issue. Yeah, the, su the subjective space. You know, it's the, what I found especially compelling in, in looking at these artworks and, and thinking about through art is reassessing what the purposes are of, of critical inquiry that from a social science perspective, it might always be wanting some kind of outcome, wanting a deliverable, wanting a, a policy recommendation, something tangible, concrete, and hopefully influential. And yet, from the the art space perspective, I think where I land is that the most powerful artworks are those that that avoid those easy outcomes, that instead try to maintain that situation of engagement or discomfort or joy, to maintain it in without resolution. Mm. And if the works are especially um, challenging, then maybe that lack of resolution bleeds outside of the direct experience of that work, whether it's on the street or in a museum or, or online, so that we keep it with us, that it keeps nagging at us. And that I think is that subjective space that hopefully allows for, I believe it allows for cultural change where it's not just a policy recommendation and we change surveillance, how it's, how it's being, how our universities are monitoring us, for instance, but instead how we think about our relationship to others. And that's what I, those are the works that I try to accent in the book because, especially in the final chapters, because I think those are the ones that have those profound implications or capabilities. Mm, that's lovely. I love that. Um, that reminds me of um, a section in, uh, I was just reading Natalie Lovelace's book, How to Make Art at the End of the World. And at one point, um, there's a discussion of how art art and research creation can ask the question, like, how can the world be different? Mm -hmm. I, I I do love that idea. And, and I've, I experienced that too, of art kind of asking a question, essentially, that it doesn't, it doesn't answer necessarily. But positing a new, just positing a question, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How how does it, how does that operate in both of your work? Like, how do you think about the the the, the situations you're trying to create or the effect you're trying to achieve? If I may, no, I ask the question. questions here. <laughs> uh, Jewel, this is like I find this podcast so interesting because when we get into deep questions like this we often get asked this these types of questions so we are used to answering them in our podcast which is something i did not expect but also i'm very happy to do i think for me 
the spaces and I'm actually thinking about this right now because my follow or my thought for you next is actually about care. So for me, I like to create spaces of care and spaces of healing and either for me in the ways in which I engage with surveillance or the ways in which I move through space. So for me, I think the art practice itself is a form of methodology healing. It's a form of care. It's a form of thinking about it, but also extending that to others who may see that space. So I think, you know, the idea of creating that that box like you're saying that people can have that subjectivity or that that release or that feeling of of support and healing is what I aim to do do I do that I don't know uh people would have to tell me they would have to you know let me know about that but my hope is that it is that for other people but for me I know that I feel that regardless of it I think in the end as an artist I just do it I just do it as my method of research, as my way of thinking, as the way of making things, of thinking of ideas, of contemplating them. And I care very little about what other people think about it. But when they do think about it, I hope that it is as important to them as it is for me. The process of the making is probably the most important thing to me than it is what the end product is. And I think that that's a little bit what's really different between research creation and other artwork making is that in the end of it, I don't really expect my work to be exhibited in a gallery. I don't expect it to be bought or sold. I have work that and have it in storage and it's never going to go anywhere. So I think for me, it's a little bit different. Uh, the process of the making is really where I hope that care and healing come in. Mm -hmm. What about you, Julia? Well, Julia's been to like Sundance. She's a badass. She's got like credentials beyond um, anyone I know. It's funny you say that because uh, I have a very uh, less well thought out uh, relationship to my own work. And I mean, I, I'm very, you know, I, I have a lot of interests and I've kind of worked with a lot of different forms. And really the only thing that guides me is just, I don't, I don't quite know how to put it other than, is there heat there? Mm -hmm. and I and it's so it's kind of instinctual in that way mm -hmm. so it's just that if something if something catches my attention I may not know why but I know that there's something there and so if I work with it more um, sometimes that thing becomes apparent but I don't have I, I try not to overthink at least at first for better or worse so yeah, I, I think that might be kind of an unsatisfying explanation, but uh <laughs> You sound like an abstract it's... artist. Well, <laughs> I mean in both in both the answers there's like attention to the practice that I think is is really key. Like it's the, the materiality of it, the embodiedness of it, and and to to call attention to that and not only whatever the final product is, I think is is really, I, I think that is well thought out. So I have a a little bit of a what may be a personal question or thought for you, Torin. So you do not have to answer if you don't feel like it. But the other day, Julia was reading your text and she sent me the screenshot of your book where it was, your book was written for your mom. And that was very, very touching and very sweet because obviously we know you a little bit more. So I wanted to talk about 
that in the context of care, but also if there is a chapter or something that you feel particularly proud of or happy about, or that there was, you know, a feeling of care with that chapter that perhaps not to say that the others haven't, but one that really resonates to you, just because that, that first page really does open up that space of care and personal for you. And I just wasn't sure if that's something that was resonating throughout the book, or if there's other aspects of the book that really were important to you. Hmm. That's, that's a challenging question. (laughs) You know, it's the people who are important in our lives. Um, I think a lot of times we maybe don't explicitly acknowledge the ways that they influence us. We know it if we reflect on it or if we tell stories or, or engage with them. But, you know, having, having lost my mom, um, as, as I was concluding the book, it, it did, maybe this is true for a lot of people, it did open up a space of wondering, what is this all for? Mm-hmm. You know, we do our academic work or our creative work and we're, it's all so important and we're all so busy and chasing our careers. And then that's both having the loss of, of a family member and the pandemic at the same mm-hmm. time, really called for me to answer it personally, called into question this whole enterprise that we're a part of. What, mm-hmm. what, what are we doing exactly? And mm-hmm. does it matter? And in part, um, that reflection in relation to my mom was so salient because she was involved in animal rescue for most Mm. of her life she ran an animal rescue organization and you know saved thousands and thousands of of dogs um and uh in in part left to me the the difficult task of administering that organization upon her passing so it's like i was wrapped up in that headspace too of how to how to do justice to the great work that she had already done so it was a messy space, but for the academic side of things, then where care comes into it is really in, for me, the relationships that are, that are being built. And I think that's a good, that's a good reminder for me because maybe like so many academics, I go into my critical mode and I'm going to analyze something and I'm going to pick something apart and I'm going to you know do something smart I hope and yet that space of being confronted with loss and wanting to to question oneself made me realize that it's actually things like this talking with you two it's actually the surveillance studies network it's actually the the friendships that are formed mm-hmm. over the course of our careers that for me that that's where that's where the value is in what we do hopefully we reach students hopefully we change lives hopefully we have an impact in other material ways but the community that we can build or should try to build and to be genuine with each other and to um, at least have those those goals of building each other up helping each other out that's where I think care and academia 
come together for me or that's how I resolve that mm-hmm. and the text then you know I don't know if there's any one chapter that really would uh, embody that mm-hmm. per se but I I'm quite personally quite drawn to the conclusion okay that it is the place where I didn't know what I was going to do in advance but I knew I wanted to do something that that would pull up all these pieces together and and I write about the uh, uh, Glissant's work on opacity throughout, and I you know think about what is the what is opacity if it's not it's not hiding. It is about this collective coexistence without trying to reduce people to categories or to to any instrumental ends. And in that conclusion, I feel like I articulate that better for 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 getting at the relationships for getting at the as as Glisson says not the it's not about the depths it's about it's about the texture of the weave how we are enmeshed with others and I don't know you know to what extent I succeed in 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 embodying that in the text or repre- representing it in some form in the text but that's a that's a component of it that I think captures both the the critical edge, the wanting to improve the the, the damaged world we're in, and caring for others along the way. But truthfully, you know, it's an ongoing project, and I mm-hmm. think I I know I feel fortunate to be engaged in that project with with people like you. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was so lovely. That was such a lovely response. Well, maybe this is a good, you know, kind of um, lead in to the final question, which um, it's so funny because in almost all the interviews we do, we always sort of all, already touch on it a bit at one point during the interview. But what, in your view, from your vantage point and whether or not it's related to this specific book or other research that you're doing now, what do you think? Uh, is the most important thing that surveillance studies should be focusing on right now? It could be anything. Big question. Well, now anything. I think it's probably what I just said. <laughs> before, right? Before I would have said something else. All of the above. Well, something I've been wrestling with and have been editorializing about in the pages of Surveillance and Society, so you, this won't be surprising to you, is I do think there's an opportunity and a need for us to really confront that privilege that we've been talking about mm-hmm. and to use that reckoning to redirect our scholarship toward areas where there are these significant social problems or environmental problems that if the last couple of years have taught us anything, I, I think it is that we are incredibly vulnerable and in need of others and living in a society that is dramatically, disturbingly unequal. Mm-hmm. And that's not news to most people. It wouldn't have been news to me a, a few years ago, but it's recalibrated for me that this imperative for us to really confront those issues intentionally in our work and to not have, so this is me being polemical, not have scholarship that is very scientific and proper and and oriented toward whatever 
studies that we want it to be oriented toward, whether it's about privacy or it's about, I don't know, cryptography or whether it's about poverty even, not, not to just have our segmented standalone studies, but to think about them as a collective, think about how mm -hmm. they cohere together and what work they're doing. And I think we need to be more intentional about embracing a decolonial project, not just in changing the representation of our organizations or the people we cite, but in the questions that we ask and in the work that we do. And that's maybe, uh, that might be heard as being unfair for people who haven't already been doing it because it's asking them to change what they've been trained to do, what they're comfortable doing. But I think that that kind of discomfort is really where we need to go. Thank you so much, Torin. All of your yeah, all you. of your answers today have been very thoughtful, uh, very kind, and we are very, I keep just saying very, very, very fortunate to have <laughs> you on here with us. Before we go, I do want to encourage the listeners to grab your book. Is there anywhere that you recommend that they buy it? Because I know you can get it right from Duke Press. Am I right? You can. And I'm trying to think there is a there. So there is a 30% a off coupon code if you buy it from Duke University Press. And I hope people will. And even if you don't, it's great to have this venue to be able to share the work and the questions that you've asked, the exchange that we've had, it's, um, it's got me thinking about these things in a new way too. So thank you for that. We are very grateful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you.